It's Friday, 27th of January, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Coming up, we'll be hearing from our Asia economists about what China's reopening means for the region and from our Eurozone team about the ECB's challenges. Uh, Neil, I want to stay on central bank meetings. If you're a monetary policy nerd, then the coming week is like the start of football season. It's the first meetings of the year for the Fed on Wednesday, the ECB and Bank of England on Thursday. What are we expecting them to deliver? And is there any scope for a surprise? Yes, big week ahead. I think by and large, the rate decisions themselves will materialize as is priced into the market. So we've got a 50 basis point increase in both the UK and, and in the Eurozone by the ECB uh, and a 25 basis point increase by the Fed, which is now pretty much priced into the market. But I think the real interest is going to be in what central banks say after the meetings, particularly in the case of the US. So we'll be looking very closely at the statements in particular to see whether the Fed maintains the language that ongoing increases, emphasis on the plural, uh, and interest rates are going to be required. So I think that the rate decisions themselves, largely priced into the market, if there's any surprises, I think it's going to be in the post-meeting communiques. It's been over a month since these institutions have sat down to vote on rates, and there's been a sea of data coming in in that time. Sifting through all of that, has the economic narrative dramatically shifted? I think the narrative has shifted, but I think it's important to understand exactly what's going on. So it came into the year, we expected a recession in the, in the US and the Eurozone, but the recession slightly deeper in the Eurozone. Now, since the start of the year, that in particular, the soft data from the US have been deteriorating quite rapidly. The hard data from the Eurozone have been a bit stronger than expected. So there's a sense that the Eurozone is recovering and doing better, and the, the US actually, the situation is deteriorating, getting worse. I think one of the key points to bear in mind, though, is that starting points and expectations matter. So the US is getting worse, but from a starting point where expectations were a bit better. The Eurozone is getting better, but from a starting point where expectations were a bit worse, if that makes sense. So it's not like the Eurozone is outperforming the US at this point. I think it's just that the, the divergence between the two economies is narrowing. But it is. I mean, there are reasons to think that the outlook in the Eurozone has materially improved, in particular, the collapse in European natural gas prices. Now trading, as we talk, at around 53 euros per megawatt hour, down from 150 plus in early December. That is a big, big shift for the Eurozone economy. Of course, that affects real incomes and demand in the economy. So to the extent that this, the situation improves on the demand front, then the ECB is going to have to do more in terms of pushing back against that demand and, and raising interest rates further. So actually, we think that rates, we came into the EU expecting the ECB to raise rates 3%. Suspect the height that the peak is now going to be around three and a half percent instead. And we've got Andrew Kenningham and Jack Allen Reynolds coming up talking about the the ECB's policy challenges. But I wanted to go back to this issue about central bank messaging because it's quite important, isn't it? I was looking at our financial conditions indices on our CE Advanced platform this morning. And for the most part, they've fallen pretty sharply since October. Could you talk a bit about what's been driving this and what does it mean for central bankers who are still in the trenches fighting inflations that conditions seem so much looser at this stage in the cycle? Yes, I think ultimately we're in the position now, particularly in the US, where the markets are no longer buying what the, the Fed's selling effectively. The markets don't believe the Fed narrative. The Fed is telling the markets rates are going to have to stay higher for longer. And the markets simply don't believe that. I think the markets are looking at the 
the economic data, which is coming in weaker. If you look at the month on month inflation numbers, they're, they're collapsing pretty quickly too, particularly on the core front, core PCE. Um, it's now coming down quite sharply. So there's this push and pull between the markets and, and the Fed in particular. The markets are thinking that the Fed's going to be cutting rates by the end of this year and the Fed is telling them, no, we're not, we're keeping rates higher for longer. The question is who's right and, and what are the motivations on each case? Now, I think if you think about this through the lens of the central bank, the last thing they want to see at this point where they're still trying to squeeze that last bit of inflation out of the system is monetary conditions loosening, financial conditions loosening. So it makes sense that they're, they're still talking a hawkish game. And indeed, if you go back and look at previous tightening cycles, this is exactly how it plays out. Central banks almost never signal that they're going to be cutting rates six, 12 months ahead. The first signs that we get that rates are going to be cut are actually when they cut rates themselves. They don't signal that in advance for, for precisely this reason, that they don't want financial conditions to loosen. So it makes sense that the Fed's trying to talk a hawkish game. They don't want financial conditions to loosen. They think they probably need to be a bit tighter in order to, to squeeze that last bit of inflation out of the system. I suspect that by the time we get into the back end of this year, we'll have enough evidence that the economy is weaker, that there has been a recession in the US, that inflation is falling pretty sharply, and that actually the markets will be proved right. The Fed will be, by the end of this year, starting to mull rate cuts. That was Neil Shearing on a busy week for central banks, not least the ECB. As Neil says, 50 basis points appears to be in the bag, and it's the signals about what's going to follow that'll have the market's attention on Thursday. Andrew Kenningham and Jack Allen Reynolds from our Eurozone team spoke earlier in the week about the ECB's policy dilemma. Here's that conversation. It starts with Andrew explaining why there's such confidence around the February meeting ending with a 50 basis point decision. It seemed like it's a, a done deal, literally. Back in December at the last meeting, we now know that there was a difficult discussion in which, in the end, a compromise was reached where the majority of the governing council agreed that they would raise rates at that occasion by only 50 basis points, not 75, in return for a stronger commitment that they would do another 50 in February. So that bit, I think we know. But what will be really interesting is any further messaging around what's going to happen to interest rates beyond that. Will they recommit again to another 50 basis points in March or, or will they be a bit vaguer? And will they perhaps try and push expectations of interest rates further up, you know, further on in the year? Yeah, as you say, I think the interesting thing is going to be on their messaging because over the past maybe six months or so, they've tried to insist that they're not giving forward guidance. And almost in the same breath, they've been giving forward guidance. They, they, you know, they want to be taking a meeting-by-meeting meeting approach, being data-dependent. But as you say, in December, they more or less told us that they'd raise rates by 50 basis points in February and probably again in March. So it'll be interesting to see what the balance is there with them trying not to give guidance, but also trying to give a hawkish message. I guess there are a few other tools in the ECB's arsenal. You know, they could spring a surprise by telling us something about quantitative tightening. They might tell us about the Teltros. I guess of those two tools, there's more scope for something interesting on quantitative tightening because we know broadly the pace of quantitative tightening from March to June. And that's going to be 15 billion euros a month, which is about half the pace at which the balance sheet would shrink naturally if the ECB just let, let bonds mature. Um, but they could tell us a bit more about 
the composition of quantitative tightening? Is it going to be more skewed towards corporate bonds or government bonds, for example? Yeah, that's true. And going back to the messaging point, I mean, my, my best guess is that they would want to try to row back from having given this guidance almost inadvertently, which they did in the last meeting. But at the same time, they're probably keen to send a very hawkish message. So I'm expecting a lot of talk about staying the course, about the job not being done yet. All the sort of comments we've seen from the from the governing council members over the last few weeks, which will probably be interpreted as a signal that they're likely to do another 50 in March, or even though they're not willing to sort of say that so explicitly. Further ahead, it might be good for, for you to talk through why we've just recently raised our forecast for how high interest rates are likely to go over the over the medium term. Yeah, so as you say, the the message we've been getting from policymakers over the past couple of weeks is pretty much a unanimously hawkish one, which is interesting because at the same time this year, we've seen investors' interest rate expectations come down. Now, that probably is something to do with the fact that gas prices have fallen and we've seen some disinflationary evidence from the United States. But I think if you just look at what's happening in the Eurozone, in the activity and inflation data, you should be pushing your interest rate expectations up, which is, as you say, exactly what we've done. So first on activity, well, it's pretty clear that growth slowed at the end of last year, but was far from disastrous. And I think it looks pretty likely that GDP stagnated in the Eurozone as a whole in the fourth quarter. Maybe a small contraction in Italy, but a small expansion in France and growth in Germany, we already know, was roughly zero. So, you know, that's clearly poor, but compared to where expectations were maybe six months ago, it's not as bad as, as many had anticipated. And then since then, we've had a bit of a further uptick in, in the business surveys and the investor sentiment surveys and the fact that gas prices have fallen quite substantially. So all that amounts to a bit of an improvement in the economic outlook. And then you combine that with the inflation data where the headline rates past the peak, it's starting to come down, but core inflation looks like it's still on the way up. All of that suggests that the ECB should be pushing up interest rates further than we thought they were going to do a few months ago. So we previously had the deposit rate peaking at 3%. We've now pushed that up to 3.5%, which is further above the consensus among economists, about the same as what's now priced into the market, maybe a touch above that. But more interesting, where we're more different to what's priced into the market is that we think the ECB is going to keep interest rates high, probably well into next year, because it's going to take some time for the ECB to be able to squeeze demand and really exert some downward pressure on, on core inflation. One of the things that has puzzled me a little bit is why... This, the core inflation rate has continued to be quite as strong. I mean, to be honest, we were forecasting it to be strong, so I shouldn't be that surprised. But it, it, what we had thought is that services inflation might continue to rise, but that core goods inflation might begin to drop off because we've seen really quite big falls in the United States. And there are other signs that globally that you know core inflation is beginning to drop off. But in the Eurozone and other parts of Europe, that's not really happened yet, has it? And I, I'm, I must admit, I'm a little bit puzzled about that. I think we can assume that will happen further ahead, but exactly how soon and how, how far core goods inflation will come down is tricky to say. But then on the services side, really things have played out kind of how we'd expected in that it does seem as if there's really not that much spare capacity in a lot of the Eurozone and employment growth is still very strong. And that's a key thing for services inflation 
So we could be in for a, quite a long period of stubbornly high core inflation. Even if it come down, comes down a bit, it will be at a level that you know policymakers won't be really all that happy about. And the other thing that we've been doing a bit of work on recently is trying to think through quite how quickly policy tightening will impact the economy. And you know, one of the problems with that is if you look back at the Eurozone's history, there have been very few tightening cycles. So there's not really a great evidence base. And 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 what's more, the structure of financing and the way that households in particular borrow has, has changed a lot and perhaps means that interest rates will be less effective or will act more gradually in tightening monetary conditions. And actually, you've you've been doing work on that in particular, Jack. So maybe you could say a bit more about that and and particularly sort of quantifying how big that structural change has been. Yeah. So as you say, we we published a piece on on this last week, which is available on our website. The long and short of it is that, of course, monetary policy acts through numerous channels to influence activity and inflation. But a key one is its impact on the interest rates charged by banks on loans, loans to households and loans to companies. Um, we've already seen some very sharp increases in the interest rates on new loans, particularly new mortgages. But the big difference in this tightening cycle compared to previous ECB tightening cycles is that now many more mortgage holders have fixed interest rates or have fixed their interest rates for a long period of time. In the past, it was really the norm for mortgage holders to have variable interest rates or rates that would reset within 12 months. Now, you have more than half of new mortgages fixing interest rates for 10 years or more. So that's a huge structural change and, and will slow down the pass-through of tighter monetary policy to households' balance sheets. So basically, what, what it means is that it's going to take longer for the average interest rate on the stock of mortgages to rise. So it's going to take longer for tighter monetary policy to squeeze household budgets and put, put downward pressure on consumption. And so, I mean, there, there's a number of ways that that could play out. One is that core inflation falls much more quickly than we're expecting, and the ECB can start cutting interest rates soon. Um, and so in, in that instance, a lot of households would miss out on the tightening cycle altogether, if miss out is the, is the right phrase. But I think actually it's more likely that things go the opposite way and that core inflation doesn't fall very quickly. And as a result, the ECB has to keep interest rates high for longer in order to deliver the degree of monetary tightening that it needs to, to squeeze demand and bring inflation down. It's interesting, isn't it? Another aspect of that is that if the ECB is not really sure how quickly rate tightening will cause the economy to slow, and if it happens with quite a long lag, and they also have lost a lot of confidence in their models as to how to predict where inflation is going to be, they're really acting somewhat in the dark. And there's a risk, therefore, there are risks both ways, but that perhaps heightens the risk of them over-tightening. And if they're continually looking at contemporaneous inflation rates and jacking up interest rates and the effect's going to feed through in 18 months to two years or whatever, that that surely is is quite a significant risk. So while I, I certainly think they should be continuing to raise interest rates for the time being, judging when to stop and when, you know, what is going to be enough is tricky. Yeah, absolutely. There's very good reason that central banks target inflation in the medium term rather than trying to target inflation in one or two months time. And that's because they have no ability to control inflation in, in the very short term. As, as you say, they, they, they've lost 
confidence in their own forecasts. And so for that reason, I, we don't really see their forecasts as genuine expectations for the future. They're more a way of the ECB emphasizing the message that it wants to give. And so at the moment, it's it's forecasting inflation to stay above the target over the, over the next two or three years. And it's doing that because it wants to really hammer home this message that it's going to have to keep monetary policy tight for a long time. That was senior Eurozone economist Jack Allen Reynolds talking to chief Eurozone economist Andrew Kenningham. They'll be all over the UCB meeting outcome, including an online briefing on Thursday, along with our US and UK teams to take questions and discuss the week's policy action. Details on site. Finally this week, zero COVID's history, Chinese tourists are back, and Asia is gearing up for China's recovery. But how quickly will things bounce back, and is China's reopening a net positive for the region? Here's an audio clip from a client briefing we held earlier in the week about how the year of the rabbit looks for Asia. First, you'll hear Xiana Yue from our China team discussing the potential rebound in outbound Chinese tourism, and then Gareth Leather from our EM Asia team talking more broadly about the regional impact of China's reopening. So we expect the recovery in outbound tourism to be stronger in China than you know, then it's been seen elsewhere in the world so far. Admittedly, you know, there'll be some near-term constraints, such as some lingering border restrictions, which will limit the pace of recovery. Um, despite this, uh, overseas travel has surged since the border reopened on 8th of January. It's roughly about 25% of its pre-pandemic level as of 16th January. So it's a much faster recovery than in other countries that moved away from strict COVID containment measures. And we remain optimistic further ahead for three main reasons. And the first one is that you know China is reopening to a world that has largely already dismantled most virus controls. What's more, China you know, has dropped quarantine requirements for returning travellers immediately, unlike some of the other countries that moved away from zero COVID policies more gradually last year. Secondly, its state-owned airlines have kept most of their capacity throughout the pandemic, unlike its foreign counterparts in the US and Europe, for example, that had to lay off staff and ground airplanes, which led to a lot of backlogs last year. Lastly, you know, after three years of isolation, there's a lot of demand for foreign travel amongst the Chinese. And for these reasons, we think outbound tourism will recover from virtually nothing at the start of this year to about 75% of its pre-pandemic levels by the end of this year. So a very significant recovery based on what you're saying. Gareth, it's a good time to bring you in, I think. What countries, which countries in the region do you think stand to benefit most from rebound in tourism from China? Yeah, so before COVID, before the pandemic began, Chinese tourists accounted for around one third of tourists to the rest of Asia. So this is going to be a huge benefit to the region. The, the two countries that are likely to benefit the most, Hong Kong especially, but also Thailand, and we've actually raised our growth forecast for both of these economies quite considerably in the case of, of Hong Kong as well. I think there will be benefits to the rest of Asia as well, but they weren't as dependent on Chinese tourists before the pandemic. So it's a reason that the, uh, the benefits won't be as big. But I think it's worth exploring as well some of the other angles through which the rest of Asia will be affected by China reopening and the abandonment of zero COVID. There's an argument that, you know, we've seen a big increase in our growth forecast for China, that, that we a substantial pass through to the rest of Asia. But I don't think that this will necessarily be the case. If you look in China, the sectors that are likely to benefit most from reopening, I think, and recreation, so things like kind of restaurants, cinema tickets, stuff like that, they're not very import intensive. So I can't see there being a huge sudden export boom to China. 
because of this. And actually, there could be some negatives as well. So if you think with China reopening, there's going to be a lot more domestic travel taking place. And we've lifted our commodity prices for a number of different different sectors, most notably for oil. So given that Asia is a big net importer of petrol and energy products, it stands to be negative for them. There'll be the terms of trade effect, and also inflation will be a little higher than we had previously anticipated as well. So the benefits, I think, to the rest of Asia, apart from tourism, can be actually quite small. And that's it for this episode. You'll find all our analysis about China's reopening, the outlook for rates, and much, much more on our website, capitaleconomics.com. CE Advance, our new premium product, gives you complete access to all our coverage from the Fed to China to commodities and onwards. There's details about that on site. But until next week, goodbye. <laughs>